Good morning, folks. Happy Thanksgiving. I'm Ray David. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, let's bow our hearts in prayer now as we turn to God's Word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your Holy Spirit here already this morning. As a palpable reminder that you are the God who is alive, we thank you for those moments when your Spirit reveals Jesus to us recalibrates our hearts around the truth of the gospel. This is what you've been doing through this corporate worship so far, and we thank you for that. I pray now, God, that your spirit would illumine truth as we set our minds to this sacred book, this gathering of your words to us. Speak to us through the life of David, we pray in your name. Amen. Open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 24. That's the passage we're going to look at in particular this morning as we've been moving through the life of David. Now I trust because these sermons um, at most are like 50 minutes long, we can't cover all of the details. And on the one hand, you know, when we're preaching a little bit longer, sometimes I think, oh gosh, you know, that sermon was a little bit too long. Um, but then I get this weekly reminder on my phone that shows how many average hours daily I spend looking at my phone? You guys get that? All right, raise your hand if you're over... No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but the point is, if we can spend on average hours a day looking at our phone, it's okay to spend 50 minutes on a Sunday looking at God's Word. Amen. So I'm not making any apology for that, but I am suggesting that unless you want the sermons to be two or three hours long each Sunday... You need to do your due diligence and read along in 1 Samuel so that we can skip parts and move forward. So are we all in agreement? We'll put it to a congregational vote. Everyone who wants three-hour sermons, raise your... No, just kidding. So do your reading in between. This week we pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 24. Um, as we've been moving through this life of David, it's been remarkable how many times the Lord God has preserved David's life. Have you noticed that? So often, there is only one step between David and death. If you go right back to the very beginning of David's account, the Lord God spared him when he was a shepherd boy from the bear and from the lion. Do you remember that? Then you move slightly forward and the Lord God spared him from the giant Goliath. Then the Lord God spared him from the Philistines when Saul said, if you want my daughter Micah's hand in marriage, you have to go out and get me a hundred Philistines, Philistine foreskins. And easily he could have fallen when he brought back 200. But the Lord spared him. The Lord God spared David's life from repeated assaults from Saul's own hand. We're told that when David was in Saul's court, Saul would throw javelins at him to kill him, but the Lord spared him. There were many later attempts where Saul conspired to kill him. And yet the Lord always kept one step between David, his anointed, and death. It's remarkable. From all of these things, the Lord delivered David. Now, it's equally interesting to note, both from lived experience and also in Scripture, 
that God does not always deliver his people physically from death. Have you noticed that? Right from the beginning, Abel is not spared from Cain. Fast forward through the the biblical account to the New Testament. And in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is the first martyr who dies for his faith. So should we look at these who die and, and, and conclude that their demise negates God's goodness? Is that, is that what's going on? Well, the answer from Scripture is certainly not. In fact, we are told that those who perish have received a more glorious fulfillment of God's goodness because they have been set free from slavery and sin and ultimate final death. But the Lord preserved David. And I want to suggest to you as we continue to move through this account of David that the Lord God preserved David so that he would be the progenitor of Jesus Christ and by that lineage, God would save and rescue his people. God had a good plan in sparing David's life. Now, this is a preachable, applicable point just before we get to the cave in Engedi. God is careful and intentional about how he adjudicates his temporal, physical deliverance of his people. Sometimes he chooses to deliver them and spare their lives like we've seen with David. In other times, he allows them to fall asleep that they might be delivered out of this present world and into eternity. How does God make that decision? Well, perhaps you're faced with a real struggle today and you're wondering that even for yourself or for your own family. The clear, consistent witness of Scripture is that God makes all of his decisions about these things with two things in mind. The first one is, he is concerned for your comfort. He is. When he chooses to deliver you, he does so partly for your comfort. See, this is the great Christian hope. The great Christian hope is that everything works out in the end. And if things have not yet worked out, then it's not yet the end. Christian man or woman, if you are faced with a horrible situation, as a Christian, you know that God will redeem it. Sometimes you live long enough to see it happen in your own lifetime. But for the Christian, even when you don't see it happen, you know that it will all be redeemed on the last day. God delivered and spared David's life many times. And he always delivers his people, sometimes in this life, sometimes in the world to come. He does so for our comfort. Secondly, he makes his decisions based on the glory of his name and his good purposes. In the case of David, he was spared repeatedly so that the world might be saved through Jesus All right, that sort of gets us caught up to chapter 24. We get to chapter 24, and David is now hiding in the cave in En Gedi. We have witnessed that Saul has had several occasions to destroy David, but in this account, David is given 
the opportunity to destroy Saul. And you might be thinking, gosh, R.D., what a strange passage to preach on Thanksgiving Sunday, right? But I want to suggest this morning that actually the cave in Engedi is one of the quintessential Thanksgiving passages in all of Scripture. I'm going to show you why. Saul, who maliciously sought after innocent David's life. But in this moment, David will generously spare Saul's. All right, let's jump in. The first thing that we need to anchor down as we read through this passage and begin to unpack it, we need to be very clear about where do we find Jesus where do we find ourselves? And in this account in the cave in Engedi, David foreshadows Jesus, and you and I hear echoes of ourselves in Saul. Look, you know it's true. At different times and in different ways and to varying degrees, we have all sought to destroy and kill David. Let me say it a different way. There have been many times in every one of our own lives where we have demonstrated hostility towards Jesus Christ. We're like Saul. These range from active rebellion and denial to moments of apathy. Like Saul, our own guilt and our own shame will cause us to take offense at the sinless, innocent one. When you read or recite the story on Good Friday, every one of us find ourselves in the crowd at Pilate's court shouting, crucify him. Saul consistently sought to kill and destroy David. You and I, friends, seek to kill and destroy the Christ. In what ways do we do so? Well, you know, you look around the world and some of them are obvious. If you look at far-flung places around the planet and you see terrorist groups like Boko Haram or Al-Shabaab, their clear intent is to destroy Christians. And so we know from Paul's conversion that when you persecute Christians, you're persecuting Christ. Well, that's an obvious case where someone sets out to try to kill Christ. There are other obvious cases. Perhaps you're a high school student and you would say that sometimes you sit in class and you have to endure secular narratives that expressly seek to destroy Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're a university student and you've been forced to write papers where the, the expressed intent is to try to tear down the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, those all are very clear. But what about some of the more nuanced ways that Jesus life, if it, as it were, is tried, is attempted to be destroyed. Well, later today or tomorrow, we're likely all going to be gathering with friends and family around Thanksgiving tables. What happens when the name of Jesus or of his followers is slandered? Well, that's like Saul. Saul sought to kill and destroy David. We all, in different ways, encounter attempts to destroy Jesus Christ. 
when we read this account, we have to begin by being very clear that we are Saul. We have been driven by our own sinful pride and rebellion to try to put the Messiah to death. And yet in David, we see Jesus Christ. See, Saul, up to this point in chapter 24, has spent a lot of time and a lot of energy plotting to murder David. And David would have been well within his right to do what? To murder Saul. To put him to death. And yet, in this moment, David returns grace for wickedness. Friends, as we move into this passage, don't miss the picture. You and I rebel against the Lord God all the time. We live our lives oblivious to the fact that we, like Saul, deserve the dagger. That's what we deserve. We, we, we lose sight of the fact that, like Saul, we are crouched with our pants down and vulnerable and we deserve death. And yet David spares Saul. And the Lord God spares us in his mercy. Let's press into this picture of David. David is in the cave in Engedi, and, and in David we will behold our Savior. David withholds the dagger that Saul deserves. And friend, God in Jesus Christ has spared you from the death and the hell that you deserve. And so today is Turkey Day, Thanksgiving. And maybe you find yourself morose, sad, disconnected, maybe even so far as depressed. Well, friend, begin here. Press into this thanksgiving that God has saved you in Jesus Christ when you didn't deserve saving, when you deserved death, when you were crouched, dead to rights, vulnerable, with your pants around your ankle. God could have and should have killed you, but he spared your life. Start there. That's something for which we can all be thankful. You know, I, I think this is one of those things that is, um, you, have to, you have to try to get there intentionally if you want to feel the weight of it, okay? Sinclair Ferguson, in our weekly sessions, talked about this two Wednesdays ago. He talked about coming to a place of sin consciousness. Do you know what I mean? We need the Holy Spirit to come along and strip away all of our layers of self-deception. So much of our secular society is perpetuated by us trying to build and shape egos that we present to others, where we say, I have it all put together. We look at our own lives and we deceive ourselves. We think that we are good people. By what standard? 
See, you'll never be truly thankful for being saved as long as you remain self-deluded and deceived, clinging to the fact that you're a good person. Well, maybe you say by the standard of the fact that I think, R.D., I'm, I'm good enough on balance. You know, I'm, I'm better than average. I'm ahead of the curve. Surely that's enough. Friend, you need to pray and ask God for sin consciousness that he would strip you of that self-delusion and that self-deception because as long as you think you're good enough and that you do not need a savior, you'll never truly be thankful. You'll be inoculated against the gospel and it's only the gospel that can truly give you life. There's no thanksgiving in thinking that you are good enough. Like Saul, You are a sinner. And if you've repented and thrown yourself on the mercy of the Savior, you are a sinner who's been spared. That's the bedrock of all Christian thanksgiving. That David spared Saul, who deserved death, and God in Jesus Christ has spared you. Okay, not, not only has he spared you, but look at how verses 8 to the end unfold. So, so in verses 1 to 7, the account goes that David is hiding in the cave of Engedi. Saul comes along. He has to relieve himself. <laughs> Scripture uses gentle language, but you can guess. And so... Um, he goes into the cave and David sneaks up behind him and cuts off a little piece of his robe, but he doesn't kill him. Then Saul makes his way back out of the cave. David then calls out and says, yo, Saul, check it out, bud. Could have killed you. Right? That's chapter 24, verses 8 to 15. Verses 16 forward. Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Verse 17. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I repaid you evil. Verse 18. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he not, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And here's, here's the point, verse 20. And now, behold, I know that you will surely be king and that your kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. See, not only are we spared from the death that we deserve, but in verses 21 to 22, we're told that David swears an oath 
that Saul's offspring would not be cut off from the kingdom. If you, if you read forward in the account, you get to 2 Samuel chapter 9 and you discover that um, Saul's grandson, who is Jonathan's son, you remember Jonathan from last week, he's a guy named Mephibosheth. Okay? Mephibosheth. And in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 7, David makes good on the oath that he promises to Saul back here in 1 Samuel 24. That, that he wouldn't cut off his offspring from the kingdom. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 7, And David said to him, to Mephibosheth, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of, your, of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Let's press further into this picture. Saul's life is spared, but so much more. His grandson, Mephibosheth, in Hebrew that name literally means from the mouth of shame. Everything that has proceeded forward from Saul's life is shameful. He doesn't deserve sparing. And yet, Saul's life and legacy are redeemed through his grandson. David not only spares Saul's life, but he takes Saul's grandson, he welcomes him to the table, and he gives him an inheritance. Friend, behold the picture of your salvation. Your life has been spared by God in Christ, the greater David. And you have been welcomed to the family table and given an inheritance that is imperishable and uncorruptible and waiting for you in glory. You've been given a redemption and inheritance that will be brought forth out of the mouth of your shame. That's the picture. How about that for Thanksgiving? So in the first place, we have cause for thanksgiving because David spares Saul's life when Saul deserved death. And God in Jesus has spared your life when you deserve death. The second thing I want us to pull out of this passage is that David spares Saul as a picture of the gospel. So not only does this moment foreshadow the just wrath withholding mercy of God towards death-deserving sinners like us. But it's also a model and an example for what we ought to do. Let, let me say that a different way. If you're a Christian man or woman here this morning, you have received mercy and grace from the Lord God. Begin everything in your life with that truth. When you do, and when you revisit that and rehearse it, you will be merciful towards others. Let's try that a different way. The extent to which you are merciful towards others, when you have them dead to rights, pants down, squatting, you could plunge a dagger and kill them, figuratively. 
the extent to which you are merciful to them and gracious to them will show you the extent to which you have received and are living out of God's grace to you. See, David shows us Jesus. God's effectual, saving, sparing mercy towards undeserving sinners. And friend, we are never more like David. We are never more like Jesus than when we too forgive others and don't give them what they deserve. As C.S. Lewis famously said, that Christians forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. David spares Saul, and it's not only effectual because it shows God's saving power, but it's also an example. It shows us how we ought to live. Look, how would your life be different? How would your family be different and your relationships be different if you extended that same undeserved grace to others that you as a Christian man or woman have received from God? How would it change those relationships? Even and especially to the ones who seek to destroy you Set before every person are two different ways of living. The one is to approach life according to law. And the other is to approach life according to grace. If you have read the book from Victor Hugo or watched the musical Les Miserables, you've seen this put on display, haven't you? Between the two main characters... On the one hand, you have Javert, whose world only makes sense when people get what they deserve. How happy does that make him? Why, it makes him an angry, scornful man who goes around trying to mete out his sense of justice. It turns his own wrath upon himself, leads to his own demise. That's what a life that is based on law looks like. You don't want anything to do with that. On the other hand, you have Jean Valjean. He lives his entire life out of the grace that was shown to him by the Monsignor. You know the story, don't you? And this beautiful picture of a life based on grace emerges in contrast to a life based on law. We all think that we want a world that makes sense, right? That adds up. People get what they deserve. Until you're honest with yourself. You sure don't want what you deserve. I have a series of questions that I want to move quickly through. If this is true... This account of, of the caving in Getty not only shows us our effectual salvation in Christ, but it then serves as an example of how we ought to live as well. You have to ask the question, well, how can I become more gracious to others? 
Well, I don't think you become more gracious by working on graciousness. I think we as Christian men and women become more gracious by returning to the cross and remembering the mercy that God has shown me. Let's say that a different way. If you are sitting here this morning and you say, man, R.D., I really struggle with this. I'm struggling to forgive so-and-so. Well, the real problem is not that you're struggling to forgive that other person. The real problem is that you've forgotten how costly is your salvation. When you remember how God has forgiven you in Jesus Christ, it robs you of the moral superiority that's needed if you're going to hold others down in judgment. The pathway to living a life of grace is to remember how God has forgiven you in Jesus. Dwell in that and foster it. That's how you're more gracious with others. The second question, you think, well, how is that even possible? Well, perhaps another question or another thought experiment will point us in the right direction. You think, I want to be more gracious. I got to press more into the cross and remember the cost. But how is that possible? Well, here's a thought experiment. I want you for a moment to think about the single thing in your life that brings you the most shame. You know. That thing that um, the burden of which is so heavy that you won't even allow it into your conscious mind. The thing that you don't want other people in church to ever find out about you. What if it's true that God in Jesus Christ has truly forgiven that? That as far as God is concerned, he has cast your sin as far away from you as the east is from the west. It doesn't even exist anymore because God in Jesus Christ paid for it. It's gone. Its sting is gone. How would that feel? Imagine that thing having been swallowed up and washed away. Well, in Luke chapter 7, we're told of a woman who went to Jesus and she poured oil all over his feet and she used her, her hair to clean his feet and and some of the disciples came along and they're like, man, what a waste. What's up with this woman, including Simon? And Jesus, you might remember, said to Simon, Simon, let me ask you something. Because there are two men. One man had $5 debt that was forgiven to him. The other man had a $500 debt that was forgiven to him. Which of those two men do you think will be the most loving and the most gracious? And Simon rightly answered, the guy who had the most forgiven. See, this is how we overcome the impossibility of becoming gracious to others. We remember the magnitude of the grace that God has poured out to us in Jesus. And it's not necessarily that you remember that you have oh so many sins to forgive. 
But you remember the ugliness and the egregiousness of the sins that are yours and come to terms with how weighty they were, that they deserve death. And yet God forgave you. See, coming back to that is what's going to make you a more gracious person. It's going to be what puts you in that moment where you have another dead to rights and they deserve it and you withhold the dagger. You're going to be like David. You're going to be like Jesus. You know, um, this is the same thing that Peter had in mind when he was talking about Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 2, when Peter said that Jesus, when he was reviled, he reviled not, but he subjected himself to the righteous judge. How was Jesus able to not take matters into his own hands and execute what was actually just judgment? Well, it's because he trusted the will of the Father. How was David able to not take these matters into his own hands? For goodness sake, he's been fleeing from Saul who's been seeking after his life for chapters now. There's the moment. He should have seized it, right? And he didn't because he trusted God. How can you and I spare others when they deserve it? Well, the first thing is to remember that you've been spared from the wrath that you deserve, so spare others. And the second thing is to trust God. Sometimes we return wrath with wrath because we're afraid that people are going to get away with it, right? But there is a God. And justice is his business. And so we trust him. Okay, the first point is that this picture shows us the salvation that is ours in Jesus. The second point is that it also serves as an example. Having received grace, we ought to be gracious. And the third and final point. Put yourself in David's sandals in the cave of Engedi. He's sitting there, he's been fleeing, he's now hiding. And this moment when Saul comes in and makes himself so vulnerable must have felt like God's providence. Right in front of him squats the vulnerable Saul. And David must have thought, surely this is God's doing. Take matters into my own hands and kill Saul. God has provided this moment for my relief. Those must have been the thoughts that David was thinking. Even his friends told him so. Did you see that? But it's not. See, this opportunity was given to David not to kill Saul, but to trust God. Now, this is really important, friends, because sometimes in our lives, we feel like expediency is the pathway to providence, right? We find ourselves in a pinch, and we think, here is a moment that is expedient. If I only do this, it must be the Lord's provision. But when we look at this account, we see that that's not always the case. So Christian man or woman... 
how do you determine if the thing that is set before you is God's providence or an opportunity for you to do the right thing and trust him? The answer is turn to his word. God's providence will never come to you in the form of sin. In David's case, it would have been murdering a defenseless Saul. And David was smart enough to know that that was not God's means. So he grew in trust. That's why in verses 17 to 20, uh, Saul concludes that David is better than him. He trusted God, and so he will be king. Israel will fall under him. Didn't take matters into his own hands. And that's our third point. Not everything that seems expedient is God's providential plan. Christian man or woman, you have to be discerning and know when it's time to take action and know when it's time to trust God. Now, before we leave this passage, I just want to conclude with this. Where was this cave located? Did you notice that? Did you see? A place called En Gedi. Now, now, when you're reading through Scripture, don't move too quickly over place names because sometimes they're really important. And En Gedi was this rugged place right on the west bank of the Dead Sea, and it appears a number of times throughout Scripture, but most notably it appears in Genesis chapter 14. Now, maybe you know the account of Genesis chapter 14. It's the moment where Abram rescues Lot. You remember, Abram said to Lot, our families are getting too big, we're stepping on each other's toes. Lot, you choose one area and I'll just take the other. Lot chose the better looking land, the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. Then what happens is the kings of Elam conspire, they overtake Lot in Sodom. Lot is taken into captivity, him and his entire household. And in Genesis 14, Abram mounts a successful rescue mission. He takes all of his men to this same place, right, in Gedi. And he slaughters all of the enemies and he delivers his kinsmen, Lot. And then in Genesis 14, it's in En Gedi that Melchizedek appears to Abram. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that Melchizedek literally means king-priest. He is Jesus in the Old Testament. And Melchizedek appears in Genesis 14 in Engedi to Abram, and he says, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Look, look, here's our concluding point. In this very same place where Abram's enemies were delivered into his hand by the Lord God. David's enemy was delivered into his own hand with very different outcomes. Abram in Engedi slaughtered the enemies and was able to deliver his kinsman Lot. David in Engedi spared his enemy Saul. And because of his path of gracious trust in God, 
became the king progenitor of Jesus. Jesus, who by his faithfulness would go on to deliver you and me. Friends, that's something to be thankful for. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word written. We thank you that when it is read and preached in the assembly of your people, it is truly you speaking to your children. I pray, God, that our hearts would be quickened by this truth. This truth that we see in the life of David, that in Jesus you are the God who spares your enemy. I pray, God, that that truth of our own salvation would make us more gracious with one another. God, I ask that you would grant us wisdom as we navigate the circumstances of life to determine when our moments to take action and when our moments to trust you. Lord, we commit ourselves and all of this to you for the greater glory of the name of Jesus. Amen.